Welcome to Reseed, a podcast about repairing our relationship to nature. Reseed tells the stories of a regeneration, the people embracing repair, redesign, reuse, and reduction, the people who are uprooting the extractive status quo and rooting the future in justice, well being, resilience, and care. This is a podcast for those of us who are reimagining our relationship to the natural world and to each other. I am Alice Irene Whitaker, the host of Reseed. Together, let's plant the seeds that transform us from being takers to caretakers. Welcome. Today, I speak with Stacey Tenenbaum, director of the new documentary Scrap, which is premiering at Hot Docs next week. We don't think about a scrap. We consume and discard, but we don't really think about what happens with all the waste that we're producing. Her film shows the strange and haunting beauty of discarded massive objects like ships, planes, cars, and phone booths as they sit in waste graveyards around the planet. She also tells the stories of the human beings who live with and have relationships with these objects at the end of their useful life. Whether it be living within the walls of an old abandoned plane, meticulously restoring those iconic red British phone booths to give them another life. They're like anchors with the past. Or creating art out of the farm equipment of decades past. Her film and the conversation that you're about to hear allow us to witness what happens to this large waste that we create, and it also delves into the lost arts of repair, reuse, and restoration that we are reclaiming. I do think that artists have been sort of shut out of environmental discussions in, in a certain way, and that they have a lot to bring to discussions about the environment and and looking at problems in different ways and coming up with creative solutions and uh, making art that's going to move people. And and so like I I was talking to someone the other day about that, like a lot of times in environmental movements, they want to create anger to motivate people, right? Like this is a terrible problem and it's so awful. And, you know, we're angry about the, you know, we can't repair our stuff. So we're going to sign this petition or whatever, but like to, to make people feel hopeful or like motivate them through joy or nostalgia or sadness or other ways that art can motivate people can actually be as effective in creating some type of change. That's what I'm hoping. This conversation is about witnessing the graveyards of ships, planes, cars, and farm equipment that sit around our planet, haunting relics of their past life on the seas and in the sky, out-of-sight reminders of our disposable and wasteful way of life. We talk about her film and its themes of repair, restoration, reuse, and creating a circular economy where we reduce what we use in the first place and have a clear plan for everything that we do make and buy so that it can be dismantled and remade at the end of its useful life. Beyond that, though, it's about reconnecting with nature's cycles and re-examining our relationship to value and how we want to live in this world. I had a sneak peek at Scrap, and I loved its poetic chronicling of our waste. 
As an environmental communicator and concerned citizen, I, like many of you, consume a lot of content and see a ton of information about waste, like the plastic that we use in our homes. Rightly so, because it's a pressing problem that we need to address. But watching Scrap, I was struck by the poetry and beauty of the storytelling versus a dump of information that leaves you disheartened. Art and stories are an undeniably essential part of the revolution. I also realized how little I personally have thought or seen about those metal beasts like ships and planes. Where do they go after their short decades in the seas and skies? It also struck me that this is a documentary about scrap and stuff, but at its heart, it is a documentary about our human stories. The young, passionate photojournalist in India who documents a recycling plant, where people devote their hours to dismantling our phones and TVs and sorting all the pieces. The old man in America who has multiple streetcars in a field, ghosts of his childhood that bring him happy memories of the past and which he hopes to one day bring back to life. The architect in France who builds new soaring buildings out of the bodies of ships, the pieces stripped and remade with great effort and challenge. We are relational beings and we form relationships with stuff, and that can be a conduit to being better stewards of stuff and earth who move from overconsumption and planned obsolescence to a culture of repair, restoration, and reuse. A bit about Stacy before we start. Stacey Tenenbaum is an award-winning producer and director. She is passionate about making cinematic films that are filled with humor and heart. In 2014, she founded H2L Productions, a boutique documentary film production company. Her first documentary, Shiners, and second film, Pipe Dreams, premiered at Hot Docs. Scrap, this love letter to the things we use in our daily lives, is her third feature documentary. She is fascinated by things that are old and carry their history and nostalgia for a time when life was slower and when things were made by hand and built to last. I highly recommend you watch Scrap. We'll be giving away two sets of tickets for the premiere in Toronto the week of May 1st. Follow me on Instagram at Alice Irene Whitaker today and you can have a chance to receive a pair of the tickets. Here is my conversation with Stacey Tenenbaum. Hi, Stacey. Welcome. So nice to see you. Uh, I'm so happy to be here with you. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. I had the chance to watch your uh, new documentary, Scrap, the other night, and it's very beautiful. I want to say thank you for creating it. It's very um, like haunting, I want to say, but in a, in a lovely, poetic, kind of dark way. I, I feel like I'm really interested in like abandoned places or that mix of like human world with nature growing through it and that kind of thing. And that was just so beautifully um, expressed in your documentary. Oh, thanks so much. That's exactly what I wanted to do. <laughs> oh, thanks. <laughs> that was exactly the mood I wanted to create. I'm also attracted to places like that, which is why I did the film. Uh, I just think they're so be like beautiful and haunting and, mm -hmm. and sort of there's a lot wrapped up in those spaces as well that I wanted to look into in the film. So uh, 
yeah, my number one goal was just to 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 have this sort of very beautiful film uh, that that, that mm-hmm. created a lot of emotion in people, and so I hope that I've succeeded in that. That's really how it came across uh, to me, and I was struck by how I feel like I hear a lot in my career and and the worlds I'm in about waste, uh, but it's often small pieces of waste, and just seeing these massive pieces of scrap like ships and thousands of telephone booths and vehicles. They're so big and just seeing them at that scale was, uh, it had a, an arresting impact on me, I guess. That was kind of the goal of the film was really to, um, cause people know about recycling and waste in a very small way in their homes. But I think that people weren't really thinking about those bigger items and what happens to them. They obviously have a lifespan, but it's not on the, it's not kind of in the public discourse about well, what happens to these things when they're no longer useful? Mm -hmm. And so I thought that that would be an interesting way to sort of bring people in and just get them to start asking that question. Because when you think about it, like a ship is so much more to contend with than like, you know, tin cans from your house. Mm -hmm. So uh, that, that was part of the idea behind the film was, you know, to get people thinking in that direction, what happens to these big things. And we do also deal with e-waste in the film too, Mm -hmm. uh, which is something that people encounter obviously in their day-to-day lives. But e-waste can be anything. I mean, it's not only e-waste, it's your fridge, it's your your stove, it's your washing machine, like all of this stuff has a life cycle. So uh, I kind of wanted people to start just thinking about that. Well, where do these things end up? Right. Yeah. And it, it, it's true. They're so out of sight. Like a lot of those pieces, I'd never thought about where a ship goes. And when you think of the time of, you know, it was used, I think mentioned in the film, 30 or 40 years, and then this massive thing just there for all eternity, really, it's uh, quite striking. And I want to ask you more questions about the film, but first I wanted to ask you sort of more about how you got to it and starting even way back in childhood, like what your relationship to the natural world and nature was like as a kid. Uh, I'm a city girl, like in a big way. Yeah, <laughs> so I grew up in the city. I'm like, you know, I like nature. I like being out in nature. But I, I, I for me, I love art and culture and the vibrancy of being in a city. So uh, that was really important to me. And I think that, you know, people that live in cities have a different relationship with the environment. And maybe they have even more to contend with in terms of the waste that they're creating. Uh, So uh, yeah, I think that that's my background that I come from and definitely what I like to, like I'm more comfortable in a city definitely than Mm -hmm. being in the country. I think that that shows in the film as well. It's it's very urban in a way. Right. Um, And and thinking about those, those big things that are left behind and where do they go? And they end up in cities, like, or on the outskirts of cities, mm-hmm. you know? So I found that interesting, too. Right, like the plane where that family is living is, you know, you see the city behind it, the condos going up, and they're living in this old sort of dismantled plane. It's, yeah, yeah pretty incredible. I was, I was really surprised to find out that that's, like, really kind of not in the middle of Bangkok, but pretty, like, it's in the city, this place. Right. And a lot of these graveyard type places are, you know, they're uh, they're on the outskirts of different cities, but not necessarily in the countryside. So uh, I found mm-hmm. that interesting, too, is like, where does this stuff end up? It could be in your town and you just don't know about it. Right. And what made me in that scene and for people that uh, haven't seen it yet, it's yeah, this family living in an old pieces of a plane 
for me, I'm wondering too, like when that land becomes valuable, how quickly they would be removed from that place, you know, like the waste goes to places that are considered useless or valueless. Uh, and then once those places become desirable, where does it go next? Well, the question is also the things. I mean, those airplanes are worth a lot of money. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, so, and actually the person who owns that land is is reselling them. I think he sold one or two of those airplanes already, uh, which is great to hear. I think one of them was changed, uh, turned into a restaurant, like a really yeah. high-end restaurant in Thailand. That's the, the other question the film's kind of dealing with is, you know, the things might've reached their end of life, but is there another use for them? So in mm -hmm. the case of the family in Thailand, they turned the airplane into a home. And, you know, the, the people that were owning the airplanes, you know, were selling them and turning them into restaurants, which I didn't manage to include in the film. Um, but uh, so I think this stuff still has value. And the question is, is how to how to think about it differently. Right. Uh, how, what inspired you to create the, the film and find these stories? Yeah, it, it's been a long time brewing. Actually, <laughs> um, I was working on a um, project for um, it was a television show, and it was called Trashopolis, which I thought was an amazing show. The show looked at how garbage has shaped the history of these famous uh, cities around the world. So I was doing research about uh, Moscow and looking at any kind of you know trash related stories in Moscow. Mm -hmm. And I came across this like uh, graveyard of old like rockets and sh and airplanes, wow. and it was just so amazing looking to me. And and that image always stayed with me. We didn't end up filming there in the end, but it was just such an extraordinary place. And it was like this time capsule of history that's just sort of there on mm -hmm. the outskirts of town. And I think that really captured my imagination and stayed with me. And uh, so then I always had that idea that it would be interesting to explore these places. And then I found out there's people called urban explorers that actually do this and take photos of these amazing locations. So I got kind of into that. So at first it was really much more of an aesthetic type of thing mm -hmm. uh, and kind of trying to explore, well, why are these places, why are, why are we drawn to places like that? Why, why do people right. want to see them and what do they hold that, that, could be interesting to us. And, you know, so that ended up turning into a different type of discussion about our attachment to things and uh, sort of how things can hold their history and, and are important. So to throw them mm -hmm. out is, is kind of a sad thing. <laughs> so right. uh, that was kind of the, the, the sort of entree into the film was, was more like, wow, these places are amazing and they're beautiful. And I want to show people them and uh, and then I just got deeper and deeper into the into the people that are, you know, working in these graveyards or attached to these things in some way. And uh, the film sort of progressed from there. That was one of my strongest impressions watching it were the relationships between human beings and stuff like they have quite these. Some of them had really emotional connections to either the things themselves like a car or a streetcar or a time in history or a memory or this nostalgia. And so much of it was the relationships between people and stuff. And I wanted uh, to hear what that experience was like for you talking to people who had these strong relationships with these objects. 
Well, that's kind of what I wanted to explore in the film. And I wanted each person to sort of bring something a little bit different to that conversation. Because I knew that people have deep relationships to things, because I do. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I really love things that like antiques and stuff that's just historical. And I like stuff that's mechanical. I think that that's something we've lost a lot. Um, that ends up creating a lot of waste as well, just because mm-hmm. everything's become computerized and it's harder to restore and it's harder to recycle and it's harder to fix. The film in a way was a little bit of a mourning of that lost time where we used to fix stuff and, and have stuff that was made well and could be restored. And uh, So it, it was a little bit of that, you know, nostalgia that I brought into the film because that's, that's mm-hmm. how I feel about this kind of stuff. So yeah, but each of the people sort of, shared that feeling. And I think that's why I ended up selecting them for the film. Right. <laughs> how did you find their stories? you mentioned the Moscow one. And then from there, how did you find everyone? Well, it was, um, I mean, I was looking for people who were, who had either they were collectors of things. So I ended up on the streetcar guy because he's a, you know, I mean, not many people collect, you know, have 30 streetcars. Right. <laughs> uh, and I knew, uh, you know, I'd read a little bit about his story and knew that he'd been collecting them for a long time and that he had this emotional attachment to them. Um, so I wanted to know more about that. And what, why, what was it that drew him to these streetcars and why was he collecting them and what was the purpose behind that? So I was just intrigued by his story. And I was also intrigued because he was kind of at the end of his life. So he's in his 80s. And it mm-hmm. was like, there's really like a parallel between the streetcars and him oh. and, you know, what's going to happen to all these streetcars, you know, he's, he's also nearing the end of his life. So I, I found that was like a really interesting dynamic to, to look at the architect. He's making these beautiful buildings out of ships. So I'd seen a, I'd seen a photo of his ship, one of his ship buildings that he did and just contacted him. And I'm like, Hey, are you doing any more of those ship buildings? Right. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a little, like a bit of a long shot, right? Because he builds other stuff. He's not mm-hmm. always building with, with old ships because it's actually a huge challenge to build with old ocean liners. And mm-hmm. it just happened that when I was starting out on the film, he was starting out on a new project um, for his, um, his ship buildings. So I, follow, I was able to follow that project basically from the very beginning uh, all the wow. way through. Uh, so it was a bit different with each of them, uh, how I came across them. But uh, mm-hmm. I was always looking for people, I guess, that, that shared that n- n- feeling of nostalgia and connection to things. Right. Yeah, I liked how they all had such a different relationship. Like one person, it's a house. Another person, it's art. Another person, it's architecture. Others, it really seemed like this nostalgic thing to remake them. So it seemed you just saw a glimpse into the human beings, which was so interesting. What did, like if we zoom out a bit, I'm sure you've thought about this as you were creating it. Like, what does it say about us as a society that we have so much stuff? It lasts for a short amount of time and then we just leave it. We abandon it in these graveyards. Yeah, well, I, I think it goes back to that question of the lifespan of things and and, and the sort of sadness that we're, we're having stuff with shorter and shorter lifespans, which uh, I kind of wanted to bring out in the film is that, you know, 
They used to make stuff, like I said, out of the, you know, materials that could be restored. And that, and that was part of the idea when you were making something that it would last a long time. And now like the exact opposite is the case. <laughs> They're actually making stuff with built-in obsolescence that like cannot be fixed, that companies are not allowing you to fix. Mm-hmm. So all of that stuff was quite important to me uh, in the making of the film, because I think there there is a sort of sadness about about the loss that we're having in terms of the ability even to repair. Like in one generation, people just have lost the knowledge even of how mm-hmm. to fix stuff. And they've lost that instinct of fixing rather than, than, oh, we'll just throw it out and buy a new one. But when you see where stuff ends up, you realize like, it's just so exponential. Like it's just, if you mm-hmm. have that, if you've bought into that throwaway culture, it just is, is getting more and more and more because the lifespans of things are shorter and shorter. So you're just creating more waste. But also I think as I did the film, I, the whole idea really deepened for me in terms of, um, I also think that we're losing our connection to things like, cause if things embody the memories that you hold and then you're just throwing them away, like you lose that connection to your past. I mean, even mm-hmm. if you think about design, like, you know, they were going to throw out all of those British phone booths, right? Right. It's like, and now they're so iconic. Like someone thought we have to save this because it's a beautiful object and it's like beautiful design. Even that, like, if you think about it, your history and your culture and so many things are wrapped up in these things that you use every day. So if you don't have an appreciation for them, like, is there more of an alienation that people are having? Uh, in life, just if they can't connect to things, then maybe they're not connecting to each other. Like I, I, I somehow feel it's all related, right? Like connection and relationship. Yeah, yeah there was a lot of uh, meaning in all of those things. Like it, I liked that the one. Um, I think it was the ship, the architect, the shipbuilder was saying how at the beginning of their life, these objects have no character. Like they're all kind of uniform; they all look the same. And then after they've lived a life out on the sea they have character and he really seemed to see that like beauty and character in them. And I think that's the same for humans too. I mean, like I, mm. I always, I really sort of, you know, thought of like the things in the film as like a bit of characters <laughs> in the film too. So like, mm-hmm. I, I think people become more interesting with age and they become like all of their past and their stories and their history is also a part of them. And that makes them more interesting and more valuable. So you could even, you know, translate that to things as well as people like the life you live is what makes you interesting. And I think that that also creates a certain beauty and, and artistry. Mm-hmm. I love that. Uh, there were a couple of stories of restoring old things, uh, renewal, and just wanted to hear what that was like, like seeing because some of them, they didn't do that. It was just... Uh, like the cars at the beginning, they were just sort of there uh, in the forest with trees growing up through them. He thought that was an art piece, which I thought was Mm. so cool. So uh, this guy, he grew up in this junkyard uh, that had these old cars and his parents used to sell parts, which actually cars are one of the most most environmentally friendly, or they used to be. Because, you know, cars, they would sell parts that you had a mechanic who could fix it. Like there were all these interesting. Things. So his parents sold car parts and he just decided after a while that it would be a better thing to create this living art piece. <laughs> so he let all of the cars and he only had cars like antique cars. 
Mm-hmm. And he let, he let the, the forest grow around them. So he considered it to be an art piece, which I thought was really kind of cool because you don't expect yeah. some, some guy living out in rural Georgia would like have this big idea to create a 4,500, you know, acre. Uh, well, no, it wasn't 4,500 cars in 80 acres. I'm not sure. Anyway, a large, large space. And that mm-hmm. was what he wanted to do was to create this space where the with nature was taking over the cars. And also I think he realized too, that you have a lot of memories tied up in cars. Cars are a big thing. Like, you know, your first car, you went on a date in this car, you got married. Like there's all of these memories that are involved in cars. And he was also into the design of cars too. So he felt like he was preserving history and also, wow. uh, and also creating this art piece. So, um, but yeah, there were lots of people who did restore. So, uh, the guy doing the phone booths, he, uh, mm-hmm. throw those British phone booths out and he, he bought them and he's been restoring them ever since. And now they're, you know, back on street corners and they're wow. sort of all kinds of different purposes. So in some towns they're, um, they've created defibrillator stations out of them. They have little <laughs> libraries and, uh, some people are buying them for film sets because they're so iconic, right? It's just like right. which history is there in that design. But I really love the um, farmer, uh, John Lopez, who's uh, he lived out in uh, South Dakota and he is taking this old farm equipment and he's making these beautiful, huge sculptures of, of animals uh, using all of these wonderful little pieces from old tractors. And, and he, I, he really shared my feeling of wanting to like, um, honor that past and and sort of the sort of that longing for that time that's disappearing so I I really Mm -hmm. I really loved his story a lot too I loved his story a lot too and the there was such like movement in the art like the buffalo one like with the eye and everything and then when yeah it's like something new and something old all tied in that one really spoke to me so that was neat do you hope that people watching this like leave inspired to restore things and have a different relationship to stuff or what would be your your dream for people watching this yeah that was definitely my goal and like even when I started the film I knew I didn't want to have a typical environmental film where there's like you show what the problem is and everything mm-hmm. gets kind of upset <laughs> Right. <laughs> and then hopefully they do something. So I, I knew I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to have a whole bunch of facts and figures and be like, yeah. this is a horrible problem. Like I actually wanted the film to be like very hopeful and just kind of, you know, matter of fact, like this is where stuff ends up. <laughs> this right. is what's happening. This is kind of the problem, but in a very gentle way. Um, mm-hmm. My idea always was from the beginning was that I wanted to have an impact campaign in addition to the film so if people saw the film and they were like oh yeah it's kind of you know our lifestyle's not really great for us <laughs> or the planet or anything else mm-hmm. maybe there we want to change so I partnered up with a whole bunch of environmental organizations that were involved in right right to repair which is really hugely important to me so mm-hmm. uh, all these fix-it cafes and and people who are bringing back that knowledge. So we're partnered with them. I'm really interested in upcycling. I think upcycling is like the best thing ever. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's why I wanted to show people in the film who were upcycling these large items, because I think it's it's just really interesting that artists can bring something to the problem of the, the environmental problems, right? It's a different way of looking at environmental problems that artists might bring to it that, that can be really important. So uh, I wanted to show artists that we're working to upcycle things, which I think is amazing because it's kind of, 
giving things a new life uh, in mm-hmm. a very creative way. And, uh, and that's kind of how I think we need to shift our thinking, because I think a lot of people have been focused on, on recycling. Um, right. But I don't think recycling is really the way <laughs> that we need to be thinking about the problem because it's kind of a Band-Aid solution and it's barely even a solution. Like it might even encourage mm-hmm. people to waste more because they're like, oh, I can throw it out because it's going to get recycled. But then it never really gets recycled or it ends up in a horrible place in Africa or in India. Right. So I think that that was something that I wanted to people to be more aware of was like that recycling might not be the solution and that, you know, buying stuff that's made to last, buying stuff that has a lifetime warranty, like those are simple things that people can do, you know, mm-hmm. like buy stuff that that is made to last or has replaceable parts. And I know certain companies now are participating in the circular economy where they're keeping the end of life of their items in mind when they're producing them so that they, mm-hmm. they can they can be repaired more easily. They can be, re, you know, kind of reused in different ways uh, and recycling as a sort of last ditch <laughs> solution right. to the problem once you've tried everything else and, you know, extended the life of the object as much as you can. So that was something I was really hoping um, people would see the film, sort of get some kind of emotional feeling from it. And then I do have a website that has all links to our partners, our environmental partners, and they can go and they can get more involved in in different causes that interested them. That's great. And I really liked how it was different than sort of the classic arc of an environmental film. And I'm an environmental communicator. So I see a lot of, yeah, that same arc. It's like big statistics that sort of overwhelm you with you know, despair. And then here are some solutions you can do and much more prescriptive. And I really liked how this was like a window into worlds I'd never seen before and both stuff and people. So yeah, that, that resonated with me. And I also am very drawn to repair cafes, right to repair circular economy. These are things I'm often uh, reading about or thinking about and would love to hear what drew you to right to repair and repair cafes and that whole world of repair. Uh, I'm actually not a great repairer. (laughs) (laughs) I wish I were better, but you know what, when I was growing up, like my mom taught me how to do all the crafts, like sewing Mm -hmm. and knitting and needlepoint. Like that was something I learned growing up, you know, that I think people aren't as much learning those things. And I guess if I was a boy, maybe I would have learned how to fix my car (laughs) back in the day. I mean, now girls hopefully are learning how to fix cars, but yeah, I think that that was something that was always really important to me, but I still, I would want to gain more knowledge, but I think it's just uh, also like, then you start reading about right to repair and people who are really politically active in it. And you start mm-hmm. to realize that uh, companies are purposely taking away your right, right. Like, like locking stuff and making it impossible to repair something. So that does make you angry. I mean, it makes me angry. Me too. Because you're a consumer and you should have that right. And as much as they're trying to, you know, pass legislation in Canada for right to repair, it's these big, powerful companies that are stopping you from doing so (laughs) Mm -hmm. because they want to make money. And and the whole issue of built-in obsolescence is really worrisome to me. So even though I'm not the best repairer in the world, I do like to buy stuff that, that I, that doesn't, that can be repaired. Right. Uh, and and that's that's mechanical. Like we used to have mechanical things and now everything is computerized. And and I think that's a huge, huge problem because then you're, mm-hmm. you, you're you're 
you have to rely on these companies to give you that, to be able to fix whatever you have. So I was really into right to repair <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh, I, w- I want to learn how to repair more stuff. But yeah, that's, that's definitely something that I think is just outrageous. Uh, how, the, yeah. how, how companies are controlling that and not giving consumers the choice. Yeah. And there, and to be clear, I am not good at repairing things. I just am interested in it <laughs> also. So the other thing too, is like creating local economies where people are repairing and mending, even if it's not you doing it yourself, but the people who are really drawn to that and talented at that can do that. And that was something watching your film that came up. It's like, look at all the jobs that could be created if all of this and, and hopefully like good and ethical and uh, safe jobs in turning all of these things into uh, to upcycling them because it takes a lot of work. Like even seeing them turn that ship into construction materials looked like a ton of work. It was really hard. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it was a big challenge for him. Uh, but yeah, the other nice thing about repair cafes is just community, right? Like creating right. community is really, really important, I think, because it connects us, right? And those repair cafes also bring back that knowledge, which I feel is being lost. Mm-hmm. I love everything about repair cafes. <laughs> me too. Yeah, me too. The circular economy that you mentioned is so uh, so key and is a thread through our conversation here, through through your film. And I'm wondering if you see it as something that will move to completely as a society and that will become the circular society. Do you think it's something that not everyone needs to to know about, or do you think it's something that needs to be widely? embraced like by general citizens oh it has to be embraced absolutely but i think the problem is getting companies to (laughs) embrace it so Mm -hmm. because it really it, it comes down to how things are manufactured right so are they manufactured with end of life in mind Mm -hmm. Uh, and and uh that's that's a really big shift but i think it can be good for companies because i think the idea of repurposing and reusing parts and it can actually be a good thing. Uh, I don't know. I mean, do you charge companies more money for the waste they create? That would be nice. (laughs) Like, you know, then it would be an incentive. Like, how do you incentivize these companies to produce objects in a way that's going to extend their lives rather than built-in obsolescence, which is Mm -hmm. not sustainable for the future? I mean, it's just not. Like, when you see the amount of e-waste being created, just even e-waste, it's just massive massive like that factory we shot in in india mm-hmm. they're only dealing with uh like 10 percent of the waste and right. i mean the amount of stuff in that factory was staggering staggering mm-hmm. and you think oh my god it's only 10 percent of like you know it's such a tiny tiny fraction that they're actually right. recycling so uh then you really get a sense of the magnitude of the problem it's funny you say that. I think it was literally watching that scene that I was watching it with my husband. And I said, like, that's one factory with some of the stuff. And most of it doesn't even end up somewhere like that. Right. Like that's like such a small fraction. And you just see it. It kind of makes you ill a little bit, like seeing it all piled up, like all those TVs and. Yeah, it's it's really shocking. And and the problem is in India, like they used to have a culture of repair. That was a huge thing in India. But as they became more upwardly mobile, they embraced that throwaway culture in like a huge way. So the like the waste is exponentially growing there, like in some insane (laughs) uh, Mm -hmm. way, like, you know, so there it's just a huge, huge 
problem. Um, and that's, yeah, it's, it's a global problem as well. I mean, mm-hmm. a lot of our e-waste is ending up there, uh, right. and places in Africa that are even worse. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, you might think, oh, well, I'm going to, you know, throw up my cell phone and that's no big deal. It'll get recycled, <laughs> but then mm-hmm. you, you see where it ends up. And, and I, that's what I wanted to show in the film, like just to give a sense of where things end up. And we're actually doing an amazing thing with the film screenings. So everywhere where we're having cinema screenings, hopefully in cinemas, I don't know. Right. <laughs> we hope. But anyway, at Hot Docs, uh, we're doing our premiere there. And um, we've partnered with the Canadian National Institute for the Blind, and they have a program where they're upcycling phones. So you can bring in your phones and tablets to my screenings, and uh, they wipe them, they refurbish them, and they load them with apps that help blind people navigate the world. Oh, that's so That's like just a wonderful way to upcycle. Um, And it's Mm -hmm. so simple. And they actually give a tax receipt for the value of the stuff you're donating. So it's just such an amazing program. Wow. So many of these solutions have multiple benefits, right? Like if you're, you know, on the one hand, you can just throw it out and contribute to this waste pollution problem we have or solutions like that kind of work on many fronts at once, which is inspiring. And I think we need more stories like that so that we don't get uh, completely despairing. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, you can come to my film and you can also donate your old phone because I have a lot of e-waste that I don't like to throw out. Mm -hmm. Um, That's why I made the movie. (laughs) So I can get get rid of my e-waste in a response. (laughs) So uh, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely donating at my screenings and I hope other people will too. That's really important for me to get the word out. That's great. I was wondering about the emotional experience of seeing these places and talking to people. Like I found some parts of it to be a bit emotional to see, like I mentioned the, uh, the factory there with people working, uh, really hard work all day long, uh, presumably unsafe, like touching all of those things and just wondering what it was like being there. Obviously you had such a, you know, broader experience than just what's shown in the film. So what was it like? Well, I mean, the e-waste plant was was a bit different. Uh, that was actually one of the good places. Like, they have two e-waste sectors in, in India. So that was actually the legal sector, which mm-hmm. had more safety and more environmental standards. And then mm-hmm. there's a whole other illegal sector where they really have no safety, no masks, no gloves, no anything. And they're right. burning stuff, which okay. creates all kinds of, like, chemical pollution and horrible health issues for the people working there. They didn't do any burning in the factory where I was. So they were actually recycling quite responsibly and they were also Mm -hmm. separating everything. You see a lot of separating in the film uh, and, and um, melting down all the metals and selling them. And so it actually, and they did refurbishing there as well. So they, if stuff that Mm. was salvageable, they would, they would refurbish and resell. So it wasn't a bad place. And (laughs) I mean, yes, it's awful that all these people are doing this as their job, but also that's their livelihood. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. it's very sort of first world to be like, oh, this is bad and we should stop this and blah, blah, blah. But then you're putting all these people out of work, right? (laughs) So it's kind of like, it's a more complicated issue than that. Um, Mm -hmm. So for the e-waste, I mean, you know, those people were happy to be having a job. And, you know, e-waste is not going away. The question is, how do you control it so it doesn't spiral out of control? Um, Mm -hmm. But in other places, like, 
I really love being in the like streetcar graveyard and the airplane graveyard. I think, mm-hmm. it's, um, and that's what I wanted to show in the film, that feeling of nostalgia. Like there's something, some kind of feeling that these places evoke in you. And it's, it's like that sadness that you see they're no longer useful. And it's also like remembering oh, the design of this time, or like you see these little signs that kind of give you memories, like, you know, 25 cent fair or whatever. Like there's something uh, sad, but at the same time, sort of sweet about the fact that they're still around. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was always telling my editor and actually even the composer in the film, like it's kind of this sadness with a smile, like Right, like melancholy. Yeah, and I, and I explain like, let's say you you're thinking about a friend of yours that passed, and you might be very sad about that, but you also are like, oh, we had these great memories, and like, there's always that sort of little flip side to it, you know, when you start thinking about the laughs you had or the things you did. Mm. So I think it's kind of the same with the things, like you think about, oh, that ride I had in that Oldsmobile and <laughs> whatever, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so I think that the things sort of have that same feeling, and so being in those graveyards. Uh, these thing graveyards. Um, I just, I, I really enjoyed it. I, I really liked that feeling. And I liked mm-hmm. the time there. That fondness comes across, I think, in the, uh, in watching it. You have the premiere coming up, uh, mm-hmm. which must be exciting, I imagine. <laughs> and I'm wondering, uh, as you come to this point where you're about to share this with, with people, uh, you know, what you're feeling as you go into that and then connected to that, like what is the role of artists and storytellers uh, in this sort of environmental movement or this waste circular economy movement? Yeah. So uh, I'm, I just finished the film on Monday. (laughs) Uh Congratulations. Uh, It's been a really, really long, hard slog for me. Uh, It took over four years Mm -hmm. uh, to make the film. Every, every single part of it was difficult. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> every part I, COVID was really uh, a complicated mm-hmm. factor. Um, that's why it took so long to make the film. It was like, we, we finished our second shoot and then got, you know, shut down for quite a while. So it was a very complicated film to make. And I'm really eager for people to see it. Like <laughs> I've sort of lost all perspective. Cause I think I've seen it like, I don't know, 40 times already right. at least. Um, so I've lost all perspective on like, the film itself. Like, I don't know. I I hope people like it. (laughs) (laughs) Also, I'm going to be seeing it. um, The characters in the film haven't seen it yet. So I have a a U.S. premiere at Docklands in California coming up right after Hot Docs. Mm -hmm. And uh, John Lopez, the sculptor, is going to be there with me and he's going to see the film for the first time. Like, Oh, so neat. So that's really exciting and stressful. And yeah. Great. So that's the answer, I guess, exciting and stressful and great. I'll wrap mm-hmm. up one thing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So, but I, I'm anxious to see how people receive the film for sure. I mean, I hope that they're moved by it and that they, you know, sort of some people are even moved to explore the environmental issues even more after they see it. Um, but I, I think that it's really funny because when I was making the film, I didn't I didn't intentionally look for artists as people to follow, but it ended up that I had three artists as my main people in the film. So there was mm-hmm. the architect, there was the sculptor and this photographer in India. That really was like coincidental. And I think it's great that that happened that way because um, mm-hmm. I do think that in, artists have been sort of shut out of environmental discussions in, in a certain way and that they have a lot to bring 
to discussions about the environment and and mm-hmm. looking at problems in different ways and coming up with creative solutions and uh, making art that's going to move people. And and so like I, I was talking to someone the other day about that. Like a lot of times in environmental movements, they, they want to create anger to motivate people, right? Like this is a terrible right. problem and it's so awful. And, you know, we're angry about the, you know, we can't repair our stuff. So we're going to sign this petition or whatever, but like to, to make people feel hopeful or like motivate them through joy or nostalgia or sadness or other ways that art can motivate people can actually maybe be as effective in creating some type of change. Um, mm-hmm. That's what I'm hoping. <laughs> oh, I love that so much, Stacy. And it's, it's true. Like the storytelling is so either completely carved off from climate and environmental spaces, or it's this tangential thing, like, oh, maybe it'll help a little bit, but it's not the mm-hmm. real, the real uh, serious thing. But like, that's where human beings, right? Like stories and like you say, joy and emotions, nostalgia, that's what moves us, not statistics about the gravity of it all necessarily. Yeah. And I think that can be overwhelming too. Like sometimes people are like, oh, the problem's too big. So mm-hmm. like, you know, when you have- Why even try? Yeah. Well, yeah. So, you know, is that e- even like motivating necessarily? Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for creating that because it really did come across that way. Like I was like, oh, this is so, uh, and like I say, I'm steeped in environmental fare all the time. And I was like, oh, this is so lovely and poetic and haunting and all of these things that really speak to me, like very sweeping, you know, um, and uh, unexpected too, which I really loved. My last question was around ancestors and whether uh, you have anything in your ancestry, either like your literal ancestors or beyond that has impacted you and your path in finding this work that you're expressing? Uh, Well, I think, I mean, my family's really, uh, especially my mother, I think really values creativity. (laughs) Mm -hmm. We're all a little bit wacky in my family. (laughs) So I I think that that was really like that, that that was never quashed in me. Like, you know, some kids might be creative and think differently or be weird um, and then <laughs> try to like stop that from happening. But that never happened in my mm-hmm. family, which I think is really important uh, and probably is why I am where I am in terms of being allowed to express myself like that and not being afraid to express myself or just be different or weird or <laughs> just not mm-hmm. conventional or think conventionally. So I think that that was a really important part of my upbringing was that that was not sort of beaten out of me as a kid. It was sort of allowed to flourish. And I mm. think that's really important. Beautiful. <laughs> and the benefit of that is, you know, creativity and expression and stories. And so I really thank you for creating this beautiful film. And I can't wait to see uh, how people respond to it and to see uh, your journey. You know, you've worked so, so hard to create something. It's like I've been writing a book for years. And when you hear Before this, when you hear people say, oh, it took a decade to write this or five years to make this film or whatever, you wonder what took so long. But then when you're doing it, you're like, oh, no, it's really like a a journey. You know, you're making something, but you're also like living a life and going through this incredible journey. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it was a labor of love and a a difficult labor of that. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Well, uh, I'm... I'm very sure that it'll be worth it. I really hope so and hope you get to enjoy this part of it and uh, seeing all those faces in the theater resonating with your work. Thank you so much. (laughs) 
That was today's episode of Reseed. I'd love to hear what you thought about our conversation. Reseed is created on unceded Algonquin Anishinaabe land. Thank you to this place. Thank you also to Andrew Wallace for editing. Thank you to Rebecca Rivola for podcast cover art. And thank you to Tegan Akers for being an outside eye. And thank you for listening. Together, let's plant the seeds that transform us from being takers to caretakers.